morning. So the reading is from 1 Corinthians 4, chapter, 1, um, chapter 4, 1 to 17. Um, this then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do, even judge, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying. Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you, do not, you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become, begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, wherein we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands, when we are cursed we bless, when we are persecuted we endure it, when we are slandered we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to, to warn you as my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through, your gospel, through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He, remind you, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everyone, everywhere in every church. Amen. Thanks for reading, Kerry. My name, says uh, this famous Australian actor, is Maximus Decimus Meritus. If you know how the line goes on, it says something like this, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Do you know the movie I'm talking about? It's probably on the screen behind me. There he is, Russell Crowe, in maybe one of his most iconic movies, and that's perhaps the most memorable line in the movie. I've got it up here today, really, because I think the movie Gladiator gives us just a little bit of a snapshot into the world that Paul was writing to when he wrote the letter to the Corinthian church. In the movie Gladiator, we see what life was like for a a captured slave, the power imbalance between uh, those who were watching and those who were fighting. I gather from real life that being a slave in the arena was somewhat different to 
how things happen in the movie, but at least you get the idea. Well, my name isn't actually Maximus. My name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church only. Thank you for being with us today. My job today is to help us through 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This chapter ends, in a way, this first section of uh, this letter that we've been looking at now for a number of weeks. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, I hope the themes are starting to become familiar. Paul is upending the Corinthian worldview, and he's reminding them again and again that the gospel is a gospel of grace. And because of that, the power of the cross is seen in the weakness of the Corinthian church and the weakness of the apostles. Paul's showing us that what we need to do is upend our worldview, change the way that we see things. Paul wants the Corinthian church to see that they've become just like the world around them, that they've become wise in their own minds and haughty and confident in their own selves. And Paul's contrasting this with with the idea that Christian leadership and indeed just the Christian life, it's not about power or privilege, but the Christian life and Christian leadership is about service. Any of the usual thoughts you might have had that go with positions of power, things like influence and strength and, and honour and might, accomplishment, wealth and success and health, those things don't describe the life of an apostle. They don't describe Christian ministry. So what is it that chapter 4 brings to Paul's argument in particular? Well, I think chapter 4 helps us to see that the problems in the Corinthian church are are not so much to do with a faulty sense of belief or a, a faulty knowledge about who God is or what God is like. It's rather a faulty view of the world around them. In this chapter, we'll see how the gospel of grace and the God of grace helps us to live. This is a chapter about ethics and the way we live our lives. This chapter will help us to see the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In this chapter, we see the power of the cross on view in Paul's life because we see his weakness. Okay, that's where we're going. Um, If you don't have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to open them to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read to you the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want you to see two things about apostles, two things about apostles. We should see apostles as servants, that's the first thing I want you to see, and the second thing we see about apostles is that they have been entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed to them. Let me read, this then is how you ought to regard us, and the us here is the apostles, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Last week, we saw Paul call Christian leaders servants, and I suggested to you that that word for servants there meant a similar thing to how we might uh, refer to table waiters today. And here again, you can see Paul referring to apostles as servants, but in the original language, it's a different word that's being used here, this time the word refers to those, those people who kind of row below decks on a ship. I've got a picture of it on the screen behind me. You got, might sort of know, um, you know, in the olden days they had ships with a crew of rowers below deck when they didn't have engines to power the ships. The servant here is one of these type of people. This is a model reenactment of it. 
uh, the picture is showing us. One of these people who row below ships. Someone who, who works in a team under the direction of others. They're doing hard manual labour. And Paul says this is how the Corinthians should see their Christian leaders. Paul wants us to see that Christian leaders serve those around them, not the other way around. Apostles, Paul says, are like rowers of a ship serving others, but they've also been entrusted, haven't they, with the mysteries of God. Today we call that apostolic authority. That happened to Paul when he was on the road to Damascus, where he met Jesus, where he had a face-to-face encounter with the Son of God, where I think he understood the mysteries of the gospel. He understood Jesus is the Messiah. And that message was entrusted to him to take to others. And it's a message, Paul says, that he needs to be faithful to. I suspect what he means by faithful here is that he'll discharge his duty as apostles, as an apostle in a way that pleases God. And this is in contrast to the Corinthian worldview where they seem very concerned with what people think of them. They are judging Paul by the standards of their day. They're passing judgment on Paul for his lack of oratory skill and his lack of rhetorical flourishes and those sorts of things. And Paul says he's not concerned with their judgment. Rather, he's concerned with the judgment of God. Have a look at the uh, section of verse 5 with me. This is what it says in verse 5. God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. I reckon that's a wonderfully encouraging and also at the same time a bit of a terrifying verse for us today. It's encouraging, isn't it? Because I think most of us have a, a desire for justice to be done in this world. Most of us want the things that are hidden in the dark to be brought out into the light and exposed for what they are. There are lots of examples, I think, you can think of of where we would like to see justice be done, where we'd like to see things be put right. If you're a sibling, you probably understand this. You want justice to be done when it comes to sibling rivalry, doesn't it? At least that's what seems to happen in my house. Kids often are squabbling, believe it or not, that happens in my house too. The kid's squabbling, dad comes in, one of the kids gets sent to time out. And the guilty party goes to their room and they say it wasn't their fault. Sometimes dads get it wrong, don't they? But in my house, there's a deep sense in which they want justice to be done amongst the kids. And yet, as as good as that is, it's also scary, isn't it? Because I don't think any of us really want the full motives of our hearts to be on view and to be exposed. For Paul, he lives the way he does because he knows what's coming. He's sure that God will expose the motives of the heart. And that inspires him, that motivates him in the present time. It's not the praise of the Corinthians that are motivating Paul. Okay, that's point one in our outline done. If you're following along the outline, we're up to point two here. I want you to see that in verses 6 to 13, Paul turns the spotlight away from his perceived shortcomings as an apostle and now focuses the spotlight on the Corinthian pride. It seems actually what he's doing in verses 6 to 13 is comparing his humility or his lowly status with the pride and the arrogance of the Corinthian church. It's kind of a comparison that he sets up here. So if you've got your Bibles, look at verse 6 with me and I'll just read a section to you here. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, 
so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. Can you see what Paul's doing? He's been setting out his own lowly status as an apostle. But he's also reminding the Corinthians here of how they see themselves. And I want you to see that there's a contrast here. It's, it's very apparent. At the core of the boasting of the Corinthian church is a conviction that they, they've kind of made it. A conviction that they're very successful or very spiritual, very mature, a very wise group of people. It seems as though they're kind of satisfied in life. It seems that they've arrived, they've made it, they've got there. And they're boasting as though this is all part of their own, their own hard work, their own merit, their own achievement. But Paul's super clear with them. He says, everything they have has been given to them by God. It's not their own doing. I just want to try and illustrate this for you for a moment. And I want you to think about what it might be like to be a seven-year-old longing for a cricket bat. Seven-year-old longing for a cricket bat. Maybe in your family, your brother has already got one. Maybe your mates have got cricket bats, but, but you don't. Your birthday is coming up in six months' time, and you think, on that day, surely I'll get a cricket bat. But imagine you come home from school next week, just a normal day, and you arrive into your room, and there propped up against your bed is a brand new cricket bat. Just a routine day, not Christmas day, not your birthday, and there's a brand new cricket bat for you. I want you to wonder, how do you feel in that moment? I think you'd feel special and loved and fortunate. Now, you don't deserve that cricket bat, so do you kind of pick it up and stomp around the house and say, look how good I am at cricket. I must be a cricket master. Well, if you're seven years old, maybe you do. But the truth of the reality is, you received that bat. It was given out of love. It's not a prize, it's not earned, and it's not deserved my guess is cricket didn't exist in Corinth. I don't think it was invented back then. But you get the idea, don't you? They're puffed up. They're arrogant. They think their spiritual position is so good. But at the end of the day, where they are is all due to the grace of God. They can't take any credit for it. In verse 8, Paul continues to press into the Corinthian attitude. They already have everything. They are already rich. They reign. I think this is sarcasm here almost. Some of the commentators use, use a very big word to describe what's happening here in verse 8. They say that the Corinthians have what they call an over-realized eschatology. But what they mean by that is they say the Corinthians are living life as though Jesus had already returned. They're living life as if they're enjoying already the benefits of the new creation. Well, I don't think that's the case. I'm with some other, you know, other commentators who say that what um, Paul is doing here is showing the Corinthians that they are taking on the values of the world around them, that they're basing their lives by looking at uh, the world around them rather than at what Jesus has done for them. They're behaving just like everybody else. Back in the time of the Corinthian church, uh, the cynics and the stoic philosophers were the kind of people of the day. 
the wise people. And they had a view about what the ideal person looked like. They'd say the ideal person was wise and prudent and just, a great orator, a poet. They behaved a bit like a general of an army, that they were a rich person. They might even reign like a king. These cynics and these stoic philosophers, then they kind of help us to see what the Corinthian worldview of the day was. What does the ideal person look like? Well, someone who almost reigns like a king, someone who has arrived, someone who has made it. And so Paul here is disciplining the Corinthian church and correcting them with this biting sarcasm. He's comparing their ideal way of life with his way of life. And here I think is where Russell Crowe can help us because the Corinthian worldview is to reign like a king. It's the wider view. It's to reign like a king, to be proud, to be haughty, to be educated, to be a a skillful orator, to be a poetic person, to have all that you need. And Paul contrasts that with his way of life. He says, he as an apostle is like a slave being led into the arena to die. I understand that when the king came back from a battle, if they were victorious, they'd, they'd march into the arena, the king would be at the front of the procession, and the kind of rank of your, your status would sort of flow behind the king to the very last person where you had the slaves. These slaves were condemned to die in the arena. They were like the Maximus Decimus Meridius of Gladiator. Although actually they were really nothing like that at all because in Gladiator, Maximus becomes a hero, doesn't it? But Paul's not thinking of himself as Russell Crowe. He's... He's thinking of himself more as like a movie prop here. One of the people is going to be cut up by the wheels of a chariot three seconds into the fight scene. Paul wants us to see that he's fragile, that he's weak. He's at the end of the line in terms of honour. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's dressed in rags, he's homeless. And if you missed it, have a look at the end of verse 13 there. He says, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. You see the contrast that Paul's setting up here for us? The Corinthian church, proud, just like the world around them. And he is an apostle, the scum of the earth. I love what David Pryor says in his commentary at this point. He says, for people like the Corinthians who are concerned with their own status, reputation and popularity... Authentic Christian ministry is immensely difficult to accept, let alone embrace. The truth that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness gets through to us very slowly. Okay, so far uh, in chapter 4, Paul's been digging into the Corinthians for their insensitive pride and for their arrogance, and he's been contrasting that with the lowly position of the apostles. And now he turns to reassure them in verse 14. This is what he says in verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. As you see, Paul's been using some pretty hard-hitting words. And now he switches back to being much more like the nice guy. His intention with 
all these hard words, has been to bring about change in the Corinthian church for their good. He didn't want to embarrass or shame them, but he wants to warn them. Why is he doing this? He's living out, I think, what it means for him to be an apostle. In chapter 1 of Colossians, we read this, uh, this is again Paul's words, but he says, He, Jesus, is the one we proclaim. Paul's been doing that, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. He, Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Here's what Paul's been doing with the Corinthian church. He's been admonishing and teaching and correcting and rebuking, not to shame, but to present this church as mature in Christ. And he does this because he feels like a father to them. He calls them his dear children. His point is really to emphasize, I think, the unique position that he has as the, the father in their church. He cares for them deeply and he wants to correct them for their sake. If you're a parent, you probably know what this feels like. Uh, if you haven't been a parent, you've been a child, I think you would know what it feels like to receive discipline. And sure, parents get it wrong sometimes, don't they, with their discipline? But in most cases, they love their children and discipline's handed out reluctantly but with the best intentions of shaping and changing behaviour. And in his desire to shape and change the Corinthian church, in verse 16 we arrive at a command which in many ways summarises the first four chapters of this letter. Paul says, imitate me. I think what he means here is not that we must imitate Paul in every aspect of his life. It doesn't mean that we need to dress like Paul dressed. We don't even need to work in the same sort of jobs that he did. We don't all need to make tents with our hands like Paul did. So what's then he encouraging? What's he asking us to do? Well, the commentator Garland, I think, is really helpful at summarising what it means to imitate Paul. And he uses the first four chapters uh, of 1 Corinthians to help us see what it means to imitate Paul. It's a great quote. I've got it on the screen behind me because I'd like you to read it as I, as I read it out. Here's what it means for the Corinthian church to imitate Paul. They are to welcome being regarded as fools for Christ and as weak and dishonoured. They are to recognise that all they are and all they have comes to them from a grace gift from God and that they are not inherently extraordinary. They are to think of themselves as no better than menial field hands and servants awaiting God's judgment to determine if they are trustworthy. They are to rid themselves of all resentments and rivalries with co-workers so they can toil together in God's field. They are to resist passing themselves off as wise or elite by using lofty words of wisdom or aligning themselves with those who do and to rely instead on the power of God that works through weakness, fear and trembling. I think it's what it means to imitate Paul. Paul's life has been, it's like he's been stamped by the cross. That that stamp of the cross has conformed him and left its shape on his body. He's cross-affected and he can't boast about himself because he's shaped by the cross. Well, verse 17 of chapter 4 is kind of like the end of this first section of 1 Corinthians. As a church, we're going to come back to this letter again in term 2. We're about to hit the pause button on it for a few weeks, though. And for now, I want you then to leave this series for, for the time being 
by reminding you of the question I asked you at the start of the series, which was, how does the grace of God and the gospel teach us to live? And, and two things are really standing out for me as I try and answer that question. The first thing I want to remind you of is the richness of God's grace to us. And the second thing I want you to see is the way in which the gospel inverts the priorities of the world in which we live. See, the Corinthian church, we see time and time again, don't we, in this passage, that the Corinthian church has been shown an abundant amount of grace. See, this church, it still had a lot to learn, and yet God has chosen them to share in His blessings. Few of them in the Corinthian church, Paul says, were wise or influential or noble, yet God chose them. He chose them despite their flaws. And so Paul can call them sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul knows this church to be part of God's holy people. He knows they've been enriched in every way. And I want you to see that as an encouragement for us today. Because we too as a church have been enriched in every way. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you too are part of God's holy people. It may not feel that way today. You may not feel like you deserve God's kindness today. You may be feeling guilty. As you reflect on your life, you may think, I'm not deserving of any of this. Now, if that's how you feel, I want you to know that the amount and the extent of the grace that God has provided. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church in chapter 1, verse 8. He will keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that to the Corinthian church, despite all of their flaws, despite their arrogance. He's saying it to us as well. Do we deserve to be kept blameless? I don't think so. I don't think I've met anyone who really deserves of it. But we have a God of grace. And that should shape the way that we live. The gospel gives us a perspective, doesn't it, on, on God's abundant love to us. Knowing what God has given to us as an undeserving people means we should praise Him. It means we should fall on our knees in amazement at His goodness to us. It should give us confidence when we're feeling guilty. And if you're struggling for that confidence, let me encourage you to look at the Corinthian church, see what they were like, and take courage from that. I think the other thing that we see time and time again in these chapters is the way in which gospel priorities stand in opposition to the priorities of the Corinthian world. As I read these chapters, there are a lot of things that are different between the world in which Paul wrote to and the world in which we live today. But I've been struck more and more by the similarities between his world and ours. Of course, gladiators don't fight in the arena anymore, do they? But in our arena, which we still have, it's not that wooden clubs are being swung at people's heads, rather wooden clubs are being swung at cricket balls and those sorts of things. Adelaideans, I think, love the idea of being wise, to be learned. In fact, I reckon one of the things that we value most highly in this part of Adelaide is education. We love our degrees and our masters and our PhDs. Like the Corinthians, we too value wisdom. 
And I also think that sometimes we might think of ourselves as reigning. See, when things go right, when the kids are succeeding, when you're kicking goals at work, or, or when school's going well and the report cards are looking really good, when the bank account's healthy, it might feel like we're almost living as kings or queens. We've got pretty much everything we need. Does it feel like you're reigning today? In so many ways, Adelaide is not that different from Corinth, is it? And so we as a church, we need to be reminded that we are people chosen by grace. We need to hear Paul's word of warning to the Corinthian church here, becoming puffed up in our own sense of achievement. I think it's a real danger for us as well. And it'll be so easy for us just to become like the world around us, forgetting that everything that we have received is from God by grace. I think all of that makes following or imitating Paul a challenge for us. But we can take courage from the fact that it was also a challenge for the Corinthian church. See, allowing weakness or dishonour to characterise us is difficult for us, but equally difficult for the Corinthian church. And yet, remember how Paul sees himself. Not as a king reigning, but as a slave at the end of a procession, about to die in an arena. Paul's not Russell Crowe either, is he? He's not going to win the crowd and so find fame and glory. No, he sees himself just as the run of the mill, ordinary slave, about to be killed in an arena without anyone noticing. And Paul wants us to follow him in his weakness and in his humility, because that comes from him being shaped or being stamped by the cross he wants us to follow him because that's how the true power of the gospel is shown recognizing the riches of god's grace and seeing how the gospel inverts the world is at least part of the answer for us as to how we live lives shaped by the gospel i'm going to pray for us father we thank you for this letter to the Corinthian church, despite the differences, we see so much that is also the same for us today. We want to ask that you'd help us to be a church shaped by the gospel, shaped by our understanding of your grace towards us. Help us to be grace-filled people. Help us not to follow the world around us, but to keep looking to your wisdom seen in the cross of Christ. Amen.